It is a delight to be with you here this evening and trust that as we examine the Word of God, we may know something of the blessing of the Lord. Herman Riddebos, the New Testament scholar, says of this extraordinary statement of our Lord, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He estimates this to be the core statement in the Gospel of John. But even if one deems this estimation to be hyperbolic, it still seems impossible to overstate the significance of the concept of truth in this verse. Uh, in 1966, Ignace de la Portiere declares that of all the places in the Gospel of John where the formula of truth appears, he says, here in chapter 14, verse 6, it is the plus neuf, the la plus hardy et la plus profonde. It is, he says, the newest, the boldest, and the most profound. Now, as we think through this statement of our Lord, we want to be clear that it is not possible to conduct any kind of careful examination of this statement that can plumb the illimitable depths of this statement, I am the truth. In terms of methodology, though, what I want to do is to proceed from a contextual semantic appraisal of the concept of truth, then to consider the theological import of what it signifies Jesus is the truth, followed by a brief observation on the rhetoric of truth, or what I call the politics of truth, as it applies today. Very brief statement, and then end with some concluding, con uh, concluding synthesis and reflection. Now, the assertion, I am the truth, crops up in this penultimate division of the fourth gospel called the Book of Glory that runs from chapter 13 to chapter 20. And it, as we heard earlier, it falls particularly in this section in what is known as the farewell discourse, running from chapter 13, 31 to chapter 17, 26. It occurs in the upper room on the eve of the Passover, as Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his imminent death, resurrection, and departure to heaven. And this discussion about our Lord, as he prepares them, at the heart of this discussion is this notion of his departure. And this talk of his departure discombobulates the apostles, especially Peter, who is particularly troubled by the Lord's statement about his departure. And so in chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, our Lord really is involved in encouraging the disciples. And he begins by saying to them, let not your heart be troubled, in verse 1. He will go on to explain the purpose 
of his withdrawal, that is, his departing, to prepare permanent dwellings in heaven for them. And I go to prepare a place for you. We mustn't think that somehow he's suggesting that heaven is in ramshackle and that he has to now go and fix up the rooms that are there. His death is the means of preparing our way into heaven. And so he assures them, furthermore in verse 4, that, they, that where he's going, that they know the way there. But that cloud of confusion persists. And it is evident by Thomas's palpable desire for some sort of a roadmap to their destination. And so this rich and challenging response, having heard Thomas saying that they do not know the way, that they do not know how to get there, our Lord responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It constitutes, first and foremost, then, an encouragement. Encouragement to disciples who are teetering on the brink of despair. I am the truth. And it is a statement, you see, that in, on one level appears to be difficult to digest. It seems to be incongruous because on one level, the one who declares I am the way will shortly hang impotently on a cross. The one who, one writer says, declares I am the truth will fall prey to the lies of men. And the one who says I am the life will within a few hours be placed in a tomb. But it is in this context, this apparent paradoxical context, that Jesus makes this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it is a statement, therefore, that throws into sharp relief the unparalleled role of Jesus in salvation history as the singular route to God. Now, as we look at the grammar then of truth, Carson, dear Carson, states that the three concepts, the way, the truth, and the life, are coordinate, syntactically coordinate. But the repeated occurrence on the word, of the word way in verse 4, in verse 5 and verse 6, signifies that way in verse 6 is a central term because it is reoccurring in these few short verses. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that truth and life are explicating, are, exp are explaining Jesus as the way. But even though truth performs a subordinate role in verse 6, it is nevertheless one of John's significant, significant concepts. The truth, or aletheia, though subordinate, is a major theme in the Gospel of John. In fact, aletheia occurs 109 times in the New Testament, this noun. And the bulk of these references are found in the Johnine corpus. 45 of the 109 occurs in John's writing. So in the Gospel of John and the, the, first three, and the, and the three epistles of John. 45 times. And truth occurs 25 times in the Gospel of John, more than in any other book in the New Testament. And so just statistically, it is a major concept in the Gospel of John. Now, the notion of truth, as Jesus uses it, involves more than one distinct idea. We know, for instance, that in extra-biblical Greek, truth 
meant, among other things, that which stands in opposition to falsehood. That which is opposite to falsehood and mere appearance. And significantly amongst the Greek philosophers, such as Aristotle, truth marked what is what corresponds to reality. And, and in that sense, the grammarians will tell you that the way that the, the Greeks used truth, at least the philosophers use Greek, use, use the, the term truth, it mirrors our usage. It meant that which corresponds to reality. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates the Hebrew term for truth Amen or emeth, emeth, which means also freedom from falsehood, as several texts will show 1 Kings 10, 6, and so on. But emeth or truth in the Old Testament primarily denotes faithfulness and reliability and trustworthiness. Remember, I argue that it does mean freedom from falsehood. What is true is free from falsehood. But the Hebrew notion of truth adopts this idea of faithfulness, reliability, and trustworthy. And the most consequential use of truth in the Old Testament is therefore used to describe the faithfulness of God. And for example, in that very pregnant text, when one reads it in Exodus 4, in 34 verses 6 to 7, where the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the term emeth, truth. God abounding in steadfast love and emeth, faith, uh, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and so on. And so the, the term truth appears in the Old Testament and refers to the character of God, the faithfulness of God. This same use of God's character as faithful crops up, of course, in the book of Psalm, where the psalmist declares, in your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God, or God of truth. Isaiah also uses the term emeth, truth, to portray the Lord's truthfulness or faithfulness. And so we read, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. So Isaiah specifically describes God as the God of emeth, the God of amen, the God of truth. So truth manifest the character of God. And precisely because it refers to the character of God, it assumes this moral nuance that is in the Old Testament, that it refers to the complete reliability and the complete integrity of God, the God who cannot deny himself, the Apostle Paul tells us. And you see that emeth in the Old Testament, truth in the Old Testament, as it relates to God, carries this moral freight because it operates alongside other concepts that are also viewed morally. So truth like hesed, steadfast love in Exodus 34, 6, where we see that there in that verse, hesed and, and amen or emeth occur together. And so you see the, the moral nuance to truth. It appears, for instance, 
Emeth and Sadiq, which is righteousness, appear together in the Old Testament, or Mispat, justice. These concepts occur together. And so Walter Mobley, the Old Testament commentator, sums up the evidence above. He says, the general significance of this is that Yahweh's faithfulness is in no sense morally lax or indifferent. So the Old Testament scripture essentially ascribes absolute truthfulness to God, to his word, to his commandments, to his ways and promises, and to his works. All of these are completely reliable. That's what truth means when it relates to God. And viewed then against this backdrop, a backdrop which does have the Greek nuance of, of that which comports with reality, and the, and the Old Testament background of, of faithfulness and reliability and trustworthiness, that is the way in which I think that the concept must be understood as John uses it. And so the question that we will be examining is what then do we mean by truth? What does Jesus mean particularly when he says, I am the truth? I would suggest that although the title I am the truth, formally relates to his divine revelation. It seems unduly restrictive to limit it merely to revelation. And so bearing in mind the background of truth as we considered it in the Old Testament, I want to suggest that there are at least three, three interpretive avenues that we shall take in seeking to to get a, a glimpse. And I would suggest to you that it is, when we get to this topic, it is like Isaac Newton, you know, who, who considers, uh, who, who considers walking on the beach and being enamored with a few shells here or there while the, the ocean of truth remains unexplored before him. And I think this is exactly what's going to happen. We cannot plumb the depths here. But I would suggest that when Jesus says, I am the truth, this declarative, I am the truth, affirms that Jesus is the reality of God. Raymond Brown, the New Testament commentator, says that in calling himself the truth, Jesus is not giving an ontological definition in terms of transcendentals, that is Greek thought of one's essence, and that is undoubtedly true. But it would be also mistaken to deny that by saying I am the truth, that Jesus is referring, or Jesus is not referring to his ontology, that is to his being. You see, Brown would agree with De La Portiere that truth not only describes what Jesus does, but who Jesus is. I am the way and I am the truth. It is a statement then about the being, the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it means, given then this conclusion, that truth in the Old Testament refers to the character of God, Jesus' use, I am the truth, is indeed a reflection of his being, of his character. He is the truth par excellence. And it's an undisguised affirmation of his divinity. We know that because the statement appears in the Gospel of John in this penultimate I am saying. And you must understand that the I am sayings in the Gospel of John 
allude to his divinity. This I am, this is what the Septuagint uses to translate the name for God, Yahweh, in Exodus 3 verse 14. And Jesus adopts this same title that God, that, that is used in the Old Testament, at least Septuagint, to describe God. Jesus adopts that for himself. And he adopts it even when adopting it causes him difficulty because you, you will recall in John chapter 8, 58, 59, when Jesus says, before Abraham I am, his Jewish opponents wanted to kill him because they recognized by him saying, before Abraham I am. Can you imagine that statement, by the way? Jesus is not yet 50 years old. And he's, <laughs> ostensibly he may be standing before older people than himself. And he says, before Abraham, I am. I mean, they, they were flummoxed. Because it is a reference. This I am reference refers to his divinity. And it is in this context that Jesus says, I am the truth. It is an allusion to his divine being. It affirms the reality that he is God. It is then an affirmation that Jesus is the reality of God, that he is divine. And this statement, this I am statement, occurs in a gospel where at the end of the gospel, the stated purpose is listed. The purpose of the gospel in chapter 20 is indeed to engender belief that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is divine. And one also needs to just put the, the, the truth, the, the statement, I am the truth, in the larger context of John's gospel, where, in fact, the, the truth applies to the Trinity. John would say that the Father is truth. John 3.33, 7.28, 8.26, He also states the Son is truth here, well, earlier in chapter 1, 9, verse 14, verse 17, and here, of course, in our text. He also will state, in this same chapter, chapter 14, that the Spirit is truth. He's called the Spirit of truth, will lead you into all truth. So what I'm arguing simply, it must refer to the divine nature of Christ when he says, I am the truth, because truth is used to describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is not the divine reality because he corresponds to some external and separate ideal reality. He is the divine truth or reality necessarily and essentially because he's God. John 14 verse 9 to 10 suggests as much because it describes the intimacy between the Father and the Son as one of mutual indwelling. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You see, this is a reference to Jesus' divinity. And it is particularly as you pan backwards and go and return to the prologue in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, where truth, the one who declares himself to be the truth, is described by the fourth evangelist to be the pre-existent word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see, this term word, logos, does not refer to the Greek, Greek conception of rational principle or reason that shapes the universe. And I suggest that it perhaps does not even refer to divine wisdom 
That, that is, Logos does not even refer to divine wisdom, even though Proverbs 8, 29 and following might so suggest. Instead, the Logos that is used here, um, in the beginning was the word or the Logos, refers to the divine word, the divine davar, the divine powerful speech, that divine self-expression that brought creation into being, that brings divine revelation and salvation. And so John would describe this one who is the word of God, who he calls truth, as pre-existent. And also in a face-to-face -face relationship with the Father and is God. And that is why I think Anthony Thistleton is correct when, he's, when he perceives the ontological import of John's Logos. He says, in Christ, the Logos, men can see Sorry, sorry. In Christ the Logos, men can see God in his genuine actuality and reality. Thus, one encounters truth or divine reality in Christ. He is the truth, the divine reality. And that is why John will go on to say he is the true light, chapter 1, 9. The true bread and the true vine, chapter 15, verse 1. He is the absolute reality of God. A fact that has been memorably affirmed and reaffirmed throughout the century. One thinks, for instance, of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and Constantinople in 381, where it says we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. What I'm arguing simply is that when Jesus says, I am the truth, he is, he is reaffirming his divine identity. He's reaffirming his divine being, that he himself is God, because that truth is used to describe the triune God. Well, secondly, the affirmation, I am the truth, not only does it emphasize, not only does it affirm Jesus is the reality of God, but I would suggest that secondly, the statement, I am the truth, emphasizes that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. You know, the prologue that we've been looking at advances from the pre-existence of the Logos to the witness to the Logos, to the incarnation of the Logos. And in chapter 1, verse 9, John states that the true light, bringing genuine revelation, has come. And then climactically, in verse 14, the writer says, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This phrase, became flesh confirms the historical, the historical coming and physical coming and physical manifestation of the Son of God. That he came, the Council of Chalcedon will seek to guard his two natures, God and man, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, that hypostatic nature, fully God and fully man. That qualifies him to reveal God. I am the truth is an affirmation 
of his divine reality. It's an affirmation of his supreme revelation of God. And what we're arguing simply, it is precisely because the pre-existent word, the one who is the logos of God, the one who existed in eternity, has come in time and space, that he is therefore the supreme revelation of God. Verse 14 states that he dwelt amongst human beings. And the apostles witnessed to his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He comes with an abundance of fullness of divine favor and truth. And describing them in the incarnate word as full of truth, the gospel demarcates Jesus as the incarnate truth and the complete truth. He embodies and he narrates the supreme revelation of God. One thinks, for instance, of what the Apostle Paul will say according to him. He says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the supreme revelation of God. Not only the reality of God, but the supreme revelation of God. And verse 18 verifies this. Because there it says that God's ultimate self-disclosure is in the unique Son. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has exegeted him. Sometimes I get confused, you know, the, when I think of a text, the King James comes back to mind. I'm of that age where the King James, King James ruled when I was growing up, so I, I'm reading more modern translations, so I'm getting sometimes confused. But it says there that no one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has revealed him precisely because he is the pre-existent and the incarnate word. He therefore supremely exegetes and reveals God. His incomparable re revelation of God therefore even outstrips the greatest Old Testament prophet Moses and the revelation that he brings in chapter 1, 17. And so David Wells sums up the perfect incarnate revelation in Jesus. He says, in the word then, we are met by the personal and eternal God who has joined himself to our flesh. In Jesus, the permanent and final unveiling of God has taken place. And the center of this truth is coincidental with the life of this man. Jesus is the means through which and in conjunction with whom God has made his character, his will, and his ways known. Jesus, therefore, as the supreme revelation of God communicates the majesty, the love, the holiness, and the absolute fidelity of God. He descends from heaven, as he says, to bear witness to what he has seen and heard, John 3, 31 to 32, to testify to the truth, John 18, 37. And so consequently, the appropriate response to his revelation involves wholehearted trust. Whoever acknowledges his faithful testimony simultaneously certifies that God is true in John 3.33. So my argument thus far is that the statement by our Lord, I am the truth, signifies that he is the divine reality and he is the supreme revelation of God. But I would venture to say, thirdly, that the statement, I am the truth, also implies that Jesus is the divine salvation. Now, it may seem to be a stretch, maybe a bridge 
even too far. The concepts of truth and salvation rarely occur together in Scripture. There are places, like one of them, however, is Psalm 69, verse 13. But as for you, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O Lord, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving truth or your saving faithfulness. Psalm 69, 13. Jesus does not, and John does not, John does not explicitly connect truth and salvation. But they are not, these two concepts, truth and salvation, are not so strange bedfellows as may appear at first blush. In fact, Jesus ties the notion of truth to salvation. When, for instance, in chapter 8, verse 33, he could say this, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This language of truth and salvation appears through the term free. You see, freedom does duty for salvation. And, and Leon Morris was a great New Testament scholar, and whatever, if, if Leon Morris says something, then you know, it has to be true. Morris says that um, the meaning is not that truth is a philosophical, in a philosophical sense, exercises a liberating function, and that adherence to the school of Jesus produces intellectual insight that men are delivered from bondage of ignorance. Rather, the truth of which John writes is the truth that is bound up with the person and work of Jesus. It is saving truth. When Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, it is not intellectual truth to which he refers. It is the truth that is involved in who he is and what he does, particularly in the work of the cross. So Morris draws this inextricable link between saving truth and the redemptive work of Christ. And one needs to recognize that while it is true that the passion narrative in the Gospel of John, which runs from chapter 18 to chapter 19, verse 42, is the center of the description of our Lord's suffering and death, there are allusions to the death of Christ running all the way back to chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When the Son of Man is lifted up, he shall draw all men to himself. These are references. And this notion of departure, all of these are referring to his impending death. But nowhere there does any of these terms refer to his death, except in John chapter 6, 54 and 55, where true or truth and his death are brought into the closest proximity. For we read in there in John 6, 54 to 55, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Jesus talks about his flesh and his blood as symbols of his atoning death. He labels his flesh and his blood to be true, implying that his death constitutes the one and the true sacrifice for sins. I am the truth, I am arguing, means not, his, not just that he is truth in relation to the person of God or the being of God, not merely truth with respect to revelation, but truth with respect to salvation 
or redemption. He tells them that they must drink his blood and eat his flesh. Cannot be done physically. But it means that there must be this wholehearted trust on the truth of his sacrifice, his true sacrifice, if there is to be salvation. What that means then is that when John declares that Jesus is true, it means that he is not only the mediator of revelation, but he is the mediator of true redemption. I am the way, the truth. And I think, I think it's Stan Porter who has a little notation where, where Porter says, and he, and he speaks tentatively, but he, he argues that the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that I am the way describes the course that one must follow to heaven, but that the truth is the means by which one gets to heaven, and that the goal is eternal life. If that is true, when Jesus therefore says, I am the truth, it means that it is through his revelation, it is through his true revelation, it is through his true redemption that we are saved and therefore led to heaven. In short, Jesus, the truth, displays the ultimate reality of God, the supreme and faithful revealer of God, and the definitive redeem, redeemer from God. He is the ultimate reality, the, the supreme and faithful revealer of God, and the definitive redeemer from God. But I would only, before I begin to pull this together and draw a conclusion, suggest that the designation, the truth, applies to Jesus in an exclusive sense. The entire verse, you know, verse 6, pulsates with uniqueness, the uniqueness of Jesus. He does not merely claim to be a way or a truth or a life, but the way, the truth and the life. And besides, the sentence in verse 6 ends with a deduction. No one, precisely because he is the way, precisely because he is the truth, and precisely because he is eternal life, no one comes to the Father except through him. There is no ambiguity. There are no questions. I am the truth designates then that he alone is the truth of God. The one who brings the reality of God, the one who brings revelation from God, and the one who brings redemption from God. I said I was going to talk a little bit about the politics of truth. And I'm just going to spend just a couple of minutes and then move on. This claim to be the truth, is a, these are fighting words in our age. In what is now called a post-truth society. For more than a century, the notion of absolute truth has been the subject of unrelenting, withering assault. The existentialist, Friedrich Nietzsche, provides the impetus for what was now known as the hermeneutics of suspicion, to borrow Paul Ricker's expression. Nietzsche asks the question, what is truth? And he answers the question. He says, truth is a movable host of metaphors metonymies and anthropomorphisms. Truths are illusions which we have forgotten are illusions. And then he famously claims, 
there are no facts, only interpretation. There are no facts, only interpretations, which is a self-refuting statement because that means that if all that he has written are only interpretations, then we don't need to listen to him or read him at all. <laughs> that, that assault on truth was picked up by men like Martin Heidegger in his work, Being and Time, where he talks about dismissing philosophy's preoccupation with metaphysics and instead not focusing on absolute truth, but on what he called days in or everydayness, the, 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 the stuff of life. And when you add to the linguist, when you add to the existentialist linguist like, like Wittgenstein, who binds language to one's linguistic community and not to reality, what he says, therefore, is that meaning and truth are not to be seen as independent and objective things, but they are, they are bound to one's changing social setting. You add to Wittgenstein, you add to him the post-structuralist Jacques Derrida, the, the, the champion of deconstructionism, who, who critiques language and, 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 and seeks to dismantle what he calls the metaphysical assumptions that are in language, who seeks to dismantle what he calls the imperialism of the logos or the imperialism of the word. And he denies that words convey meaning that words only refer to other words in which it stands in relationship. You add to existentialism, you add to linguists, you add the pragmatism of William James. And what we have today is a rejection of absolute objective truth, certainty and grand narratives, the overarching story that explains all things. In this post, truth era, Christian dogma, and particularly the dogma that Jesus Christ is the truth, has received and is receiving a decidedly failing grade. It is considered incredibly insensitive, highly offensive for other faiths and for other non-Christians to even suggest that Jesus Christ is truth. The truth on offer in a in a, in, a, in a pluralistic society is one that is relative, one that is privatized, one that means simply truth is that which is true for me. Well, let me pull this together and make a few parting comments. I think that as you read what Jesus says, I am the truth, that this statement establishes the preeminence of Jesus and therefore, this statement that Jesus is the truth demands continual hearing and rearticulation. It conveys essential messages. First, Jesus as truth in John's gospel reorients and clarifies spiritual vision. See, John pictures the poor, despised, rejected Galilean as paradoxically the locus of divine reality, the very ultimate ground and source of truth, that all truth, whether scientific or theological, cohere in him, the truth. In particular, he is the reality 
through which we have Christian existence. In other words, it is precisely because Jesus Christ is the reality that we have anything known as real Christianity. We, you and I would never have any true spiritual encounter with God unless we have come into connection and have encountered him who is truth, who is reality. And if we are to find meaning, and if we are to find significance, that meaning and significance can only be found with Jesus Christ who is the truth, the reality of God. And to know this reality, one must encounter truth in Christ by continually turning from the mirage and the parodies and the siren call of all that passes by for good living. There needs to be a turning to Christ to know him. And this knowledge of Christ is not merely intellectual, but it is moral. You know, Jesus made an astonishing statement. In John 7, 17, he says, if, anyone will, if, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. Jesus says, you know what he says? He says, if you want to know truth, you must be willing to do the will of God. One must will to do to know. Because you see, the reason that men do not know God is the very same reason. The, the reason that men cannot find God is the very same reason why a thief cannot find a policeman. It is moral. And the reason that men cannot know God and will not know God, it is because of our sin, our blindness, our opposition to God. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. If we are to have this relationship with the reality, who's God, we must be transformed, we must be changed, and that by the Spirit. Second, our Lord's assertion of the truth directs Christian practice. It not only re reorients us and clarifies spiritual vision, Jesus as the truth directs our practice. You and I, because Christ is the truth, must love truth. And the church must above all else, be a truth-seeking community. We must pursue truth, not the mysterious and the spurious, but the truth of Jesus Christ revealed in the Scriptures. We, we must feed ourselves upon the incarnate Word of God revealed in Scripture. We must come to the light. We must feed upon Christ. Because it is only, you see, by feeding upon Christ that this truth shapes Christian character, molds us into the image of Christ. It transforms us, and only by the spirit of truth. Third, the truth, who is Jesus Christ, grounds all apologetic endeavor. We will have nothing to say. We'll, and that is, we'll have nothing life-transforming to say to a world in darkness without humble but unmistakable conveyance of the exclusivity of Jesus the truth. He brooks no middle ground. We must tell men that they must embrace Jesus Christ ultimately as God in flesh who reveals the character, the ways, and the salvation that God provides. We must also let men understand that by rejecting Jesus, 
means that they have rejected life and have entered into the covenant with the father of lies and into a covenant with death itself. The message of Jesus the truth must not be denied, must not be toned down or compromised, but affirmed and proclaimed as the only hope for sinners. Finally, finally, if Jesus as truth reorients and clarifies spiritual vision and directs Christian practice and grounds all apologetic endeavors, then Jesus as truth underpins the assurance of eternal salvation. What I'm arguing here is that however relevant truth is for the apologetic task, however relevant we may think Jesus saying, I am the truth, is for teaching and defending the faith. We must first, reading this statement in the context of John 14, recognize that these words, I am the truth, are enduring words of comfort and assurance. In other words, Jesus proffers himself as the true way across the divide between this life and the next life. He proffers himself as the only avenue of salvation. What is happening in John chapter 14? The disciples are worried. They do not know where Christ is going. At least that's what they think. They do not know the way. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the way and I am the truth. I am the truth. What does that mean? I think Martin Luther sums this up best. He says, Christ is not only the way on which we must begin our journey, but he's also the right way and the safe way. He is the right way and he is the safe way. When Jesus says, I am the truth, he means he reflects the divine reality and the divine revelation and the divine redemption. But he tells the disciples, and he tells us now, in our hours of doubt, you're on the right way. You're on the safe way. Because I am the truth. And following me, you will never be deceived. And you will never fall short of my father's home. Because I think it was Gehardus Voss, that old, time, old Testament scholar, who says that Jesus is not only the way to heaven, but in his being, in his person, he embodies heaven. I am the truth. Means that you are safe if your faith is in Jesus Christ. That you are on the right way. Because Jesus Christ is the truth of God's being, the truth of his revelation, and the truth as relates to salvation.